Welcome back to DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and you are listening to my review slash analysis of the 2004 debut album by The Chariot titled Everything is Alive, Everything is Breathing, Nothing is Dead, and Nothing is Bleeding. And one of the things that I always found super intriguing about this album is the fact that the band basically just went into a studio and recorded it. They just they plugged in, they let their amps ring out, they let their guitars ring out, they let everything sort of sit in a room and create its own atmosphere. And I thought it would be fun for this episode. Wow, okay. I thought it would be fun for this episode to do exactly the same thing. See how good I can get it in one take without using computers to edit what I'm saying. So you're going to hear me mess up a lot in this episode, and I am totally here for it. You might hear things like my lips smacking. You might hear me stop and have a coughing fit in the middle of the episode. You might hear a car driving by. I didn't turn on all those fancy sound filters on my recording software. You know, the stuff that makes it sound like I'm in a million-dollar studio. So uh, we're going to get this episode out, warts and all. And I kind of hate doing intros, so we're just going to jump right into the script. Here we go. Just because life is hard, that doesn't mean that it's not good. Is a quote that's been running through my mind since it was said by Joshua King last week on this very podcast. And I've kind of been mulling it over in my mind. I've always had an interesting relationship with negativity. And that's obviously led me down the path of being an enjoyer of all things dark, depressing, and angry. And while those very traits very much define who I am at times. It's always refreshing to discover or rediscover a stark counterpoint to that mindset. And that plus the addition of people asking me to talk about this record for months is what led me to seek out a musical example of that mindset. I had to find a record that is absolutely hard in a sense, but still very good. And not only in musicianship, but also in intent, which led me to the only obvious conclusion. I had to revisit a relic from my past. That record, that record, wow. That relic, of course, being 2004's Everything is Alive, Everything is Breathing, Nothing is Dead, and Nothing is Bleeding by The Chariot. And I think everybody already knows this story. So I'll give you guys like the short version of it so we don't waste too much precious hard drive space because you know I don't want to I don't want to use too much hard drive space. I kind of don't want to delete like all my computer games that I don't have time to that I don't really have time to play. 
But basically, in 2002, coming off of the success of Norma Jean's landmark album, Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child, the band's lead singer, Josh Scogan, decided to leave the band right before the band went on stage at, I guess it was Furnace Fest. Wow, yeah. I, I keep always thinking of Furnace Fest as this new festival, but I guess it's actually, um, you know, it was it was brought back. That's that's the entire point, is that, you know, you're, you're bringing old stuff. Anyway. Josh just decided to leave the band on stage. I think he told the band members ahead of time, like right before they went on stage, and then he actually ended up telling the crowd as well while they were playing. And he assured everybody that this wasn't due to any conflicts inside the band, but that it was just something that he felt led to do. But then less than one year later, he was back in a new band called The Chariot, which... Legend has it was inspired by the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. You know, the guy that was famously carried away on a flaming chariot. And I remember being completely devastated at the loss of Norma Jean's frontman. I mean, he, he didn't die, but... At the time I heard Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child, I had basically never heard anything else like it in my life. And it was loud, boisterous, unrestricted and absolutely pushed the boundaries of what I understood music to be at that time. And before you fire off that email, remember that this was just the experience of a Christian youth group kid in his last couple years of high school. I mean, I hadn't pirated enough music yet to have a full education. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have admitted that. Me and Buddy especially were obsessed with that Norma Jean record, though. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're still kind of obsessed with it. And it's one of those albums that once we hit 60 years old, we're going to start running around telling kids, you know, it never got better than Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child by Norma Jean. But I'm not here to analyze that record. And no, I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to do an episode on that record. I made that mistake last season. I, I told everybody I was going to do a Project 86 Truthless Heroes review. And, um, well, I, I didn't. <laughs> But if you guys want to hear the second part of the story I told in the Dead Poetic episode, go listen to my episode on Depravity by A Plea for Purging, which I'm totally going to plug again because I, I really liked that episode. I was really proud of it. So I'm going to plug it again before the end of this episode. So imagine me and Buddy's surprise whenever we hear that the chair. Yep, that's a mess up. Imagine me and Buddy's surprise when we heard about the chariot and we only referred to Josh as that guy from Norma Jean. See, back then, when there wasn't really social media to speak of, we didn't really know what was going on with Norma Jean. And we had just gotten into Norma Jean not that long before Josh left the band. So my small brain at the time could not even comprehend the idea that the band would even be able to continue without their lead singer. Which, you know, they did. They had a fill-in singer for a while. They played some instrumental shows. They even let audience members come up and sing the songs at some of the shows. And eventually they got their full-time replacement, Corey Brandon, before recording their second album, Oh God, The Aftermath. But that record didn't come out until March of 2005, which wasn't objectively that long to wait. I mean, it came out four months after the Chariots album. So at the time, the only hope that we really had to get another record in the same vein as Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child was the Chariot. And I actually got to see the Chariot at Cornerstone Festival that summer. I got to see the band absolutely in their element. Just dudes jumping off the stage into the crowd. 
At one point, Josh climbed up on top of like the tallest amplifier and jumped down onto the stage. Not really sure how he didn't kill himself doing that. And it was just a whole bunch of dudes on stage spazzing and convulsing to this insane music that I didn't really even know the songs yet. All I remember is there was this wall of feedback and a pit that I'm surprised that I even survived. And interesting fact, if you go and watch the Chariot DVD that came out after this album was released, I'm actually in one of the crowd shots. Uh, I actually pulled the timestamp up on YouTube. It's at 16 minutes and 17 seconds if you just absolutely need to see me in my afro at Cornerstone. And I remember hearing one song from a compilation called This Is Solid State Volume 5, which was called It Is Usually the Boys Who Cry Wolf That Grow Up to Be the Men Who Cry Sanctuary. And if you thought that was a mouthful, just wait, because it gets a lot better. And I remember thinking that it was completely insane sounding. More extreme than Norma Jean. More extreme than the Norma Jean song that was on that same sampler. And the Chariot song sounded more like Norma Jean to me than Norma Jean did. But I will have to say the version of In Reference to a Sinking Ship that's on that sampler is way more raw than the final album version of that song. But that Chariot song was much looser, noisier, and just generally more unhinged. And Josh's vocals were maniacal. And that song, which would later be retooled into the song Yellow Dress Lock Knees for the album, starts off sounding almost like a grindcore song. And it leads into this like really sickening type of melody midway through the song. It's absolutely what the doctor ordered, and I was like, okay, great, we're good. This is Bless the Martyr Part 2. Let's fucking go. But thankfully, I was kind of wrong about a lot of that. I remember buying the CD at One Way Christian Bookstore the day it came out. And I was finally able to drive myself up there at the time because I didn't actually start driving until I was 18. And I went up to the bookstore by myself and slapped down my $15.99, like a good boy. And I ended up breaking the two tabs off the side of the CD case in my lust to get the plastic off of it. Yeah, And you know what I'm talking about, right? Like those two tiny tabs that are on each side of the CD spine. They've got like, it's like a raised bit of plastic and like it, it makes a hinge. I needed to hear this experience as fast as humanly possible. And now that I think about it, I don't think I ever replaced that CD case. Maybe I did a few years after that. I threw the plastic away and I popped the CD in and prepared to have my mind blown. There's a certain beauty to not really knowing what to expect. And although I had heard the one demo song on the Solid State sampler, I was not really prepared at all for what I was about to hear. This album was so raw that it made Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child sound like a record that was produced in a million dollar studio by comparison. Full pounding drums, 
insane riffs and seemingly random time signatures flooded my ears with Josh Scogan's equally random vocals beating themselves into my skull just as hard as the music itself. And every time there was a pause, my ears screamed from the amp feedback. The record sounded like it was recorded in one room with about eight microphones, including the vocal mic. I'd never listened to anything quite as underproduced as this before, and I really fed off of that pure energy and chaos. And admittedly, I was disappointed that the album was over before I even made it home. So I pulled the CD out of the car and haphazardly put the broken case back together. And I ran inside and dropped down on my bed in my bedroom and I busted open the CD booklet. And it was still some, I was still somewhat in shock trying to make logical sense of what I had just experienced. Much like Norma Jean's Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child booklet, the artwork is mostly creepy pictures, only they're of this woman who you can really not see very clearly. And she's like holding an umbrella. The front and back photos depict her standing at night and the inner photos show her standing in a field with one of the pictures showing her holding this like old bowler hat in one hand and a violin in the other. And there's no umbrella in that picture for some reason. There actually isn't much to read in those liner notes except for one statement from the band on the first panel behind the cover. And that says... This album was recorded live in a studio setting, and no computers were used in the manipulation of our music. Everything that you hear was played by human beings and was not copied and pasted by computers. That is why it may sound a little raw and unconventional. Technology is a convenience, and it is okay to be used in moderation. But for the sake of the lost, authentic sound of rock and roll, we decided to go the route of our forefathers and get it all in one take as best as we could. We believe that sweat and practice should uh, should persevere over the convenience of a computer. We believe that although this album may not sound 100% tight and perfect in every way like you were used to, it will be authentic and therefore understood. At least that is our hope. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your support. We hope this album brings joy to your heart. The Chariot. And this was always such an interesting explanation for why the album sounds the way that it does. Because honestly, at that time, I probably couldn't tell the difference between an overproduced album and an underproduced album. Like, I could tell they sounded different, but I probably didn't know enough to know why. And it's kind of one of those things where you just have to kind of feel it, right? And I can for sure tell you this, though. The other guys at school who were just getting into hardcore at the time did not like this album very much at all. These big dudes in, like, throwdown and madball shirts were telling me it was the worst shit that they'd ever heard in their lives. What kind of a band lets feedback ring out on their album? These Christian bands are all shitty. What were they even thinking? I even remember showing it to my girlfriend at the time, or as I call her now, my wife. And absolutely, she could not stand it. When I would pop this bad boy in for a nice Sunday drive, she would get upset. And I clearly remember her saying at one point, I can handle stuff like X-Toll and Zayo, but this is literally just noise and it makes me want to scream and jump out of the car. And I was like, exactly, me too. I joked that if we ever got married that I was going to listen to this album on the way to our wedding. And when we finally did get married in 2008, that is exactly what I did. 
It's always bothered me, though, that other people didn't like the album because it was too raw, because I was literally obsessed with it when it came out. I think this may have been the Norma Jean Bless the Martyr fan in me, but even when Oh God, The Aftermath came out, we used to say that we didn't feel like it held a candle to the chariot, because back then, it wasn't because two different sets of people decided to make two different kinds of records. Absolutely not. It had to be a contest of some kind, right? Right? But more than that, I think it might have been my first flirtation with pretension. It was kind of an early stage of my career of being a professional music enjoyer. And I'll get more into that whenever I talk about some of the lyrics and the song titles. There's always something really alluring about liking something that nobody else likes. Especially when you're 17 or 18 years old, that feeling is multiplied by like a thousand. Like Buddy and I have talked about like a lot of times on this podcast because no, that was a huge mess up. <laughs> Sorry about that guys. Uh, buddy and I like buddy and I have talked about many times on the podcast. Sometimes it felt like it was just me and him against the world at that time. And this is especially true of the chariot for us. The thing definitely blasts when it needs to, and it gets very chunky and meaty when it needs to, but it, does have an interesting energy to it where it really does feel like a bunch of guys in a room playing songs. And it kind of reminds me of like some of my earliest band practices, especially with that unpredictability, like never really knowing what your guitarist is about to do, what your drummer's about to do. Although if you're a singer of the band, they're probably going to do something that annoys you and drowns you out on the microphone. So uh, you need to get yourself a fully fledged PA system as quickly as you can so that you can overpower everybody. But this album captures that raw feeling in a way that like bands like Metallica were not actually able to fully capture on their like Saint Anger album because like they were trying like too hard to make it sound raw. There's like a subtle art to it and I think the chariot nails it here. And after reading along to the lyrics, which is a side note, the lyrics are super brief and the song titles are not. I'll get into them as I do the album overview. And speaking of the album overview, why don't we go ahead and do that? This absolute beast of a record kicks off with a song called Before There Was Atlanta, There Was Douglasville. And if you think that's a weird song title, just buckle up. The song starts with a blast of feedback, also get used to that, and Josh gets the song going by screaming, this ain't my first Rodeo. Like, he pronounces it like that, like Rodeo, like Rodeo Drive. I, I don't know, I always thought it was Rodeo, but maybe it's me that says it wrong. Anyway, what follows is two more minutes of sloppy but endearing chaotic riffs, feedback squeals, and dissonant waves that engulf all of your senses except for maybe your taste and your smell. And as the lyrics hone in on themes of death, they also stay kind of positive. Like it starts off describing this terrifying concept that every step we take is one more step towards the grave. However, he sings a new song that mostly falls on deaf ears. 
the new song is probably a reference to the gospel of Christ, which if you grew up in an evangelical culture like I did, you'd be able to kind of relate to the fact that people just don't really like to hear you talk about Jesus. I think what's interesting about this song is that it addresses the normally morbid topic of death in this like fresh and almost positive kind of way. It's not mournful of eventual death. He's excited to be singing his new song as he marches step by step to the grave. And up next, we have the briefly titled, go ahead and take a deep breath and say it with me if you know it. <sighs> Someday, in the event that mankind actually figures out what it is that the world revolves around, thousands of people will be shocked and perplexed to find out that it was not them. Sometimes this includes me. Ugh. Buddy and I used to joke that that song title was like longer than the actual lyrics to the song. We used to literally say it all the time, but it, it's not objectively true. And I, I, I care about you guys that, that are listening, and I, I want to make sure that I'm communicating the absolute truth of the matter. The song title is exactly 37 words long, and the lyrics are a whopping 48 words long. That's if you don't count Josh screaming, my closet holds no bones, like 100 times at the end. Hey, look, I never pretended my jokes were funny or factual. This song is another song about apocalyptic vibes with a positive spin as Josh describes lighting the fuse that was for the end of it all. But he is content in the fact that he died with his closet having no bones, dying a guilt-free death. And the next song is called Dialogue with a Question Mark. And it's always been a huge question mark for me. It's one of the most popular songs by The Chariot to the point where when I hear somebody mention The Chariot, I hear in my head Josh screaming, walk off stage, walk off stage, in like just over and over and over again. I usually can't get it out of my head. And it's another great song musically, but it's a song that lyrically I've never been able to really pin down the meaning of. The lyrics on this album are really sparse anyway, but they are dancing around into the aisle and into the yard. Yes, practicing. Yes, we're practicing for war. Walk off stage, walk off stage, walk off stage. Oh, the request, the response, beg for your fingertips. The emeralds that we claim cost nothing unless we walk off stage and then bury it for all to see. Bury it, bury it for all to see. The request, the response, Oh, precious diamonds, precious diamonds. And despite not being able to make much sense out of that, for you guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try anyway. I think the song is about people acting out their faith in like some big, boisterous way in front of crowds of people. Because I grew up in a Pentecostal church, so the idea of like dancing around into the aisle and into the yard is very familiar to me. And him saying, practicing, we're practicing, seems to indicate that it's all an act for a show. And that the emeralds we claim cost nothing unless we walk off stage could be saying that the real salvation that they have is more intimate and a more private relationship with God. With the Chariot being a Christian heavy band, I could see how this concept could relate to playing shows in front of Christian crowds. Like I said, I don't know, though, because I'm not Josh Scogan, but that's... That's just my best guess. 
After that, we have die interviewer. I am only speaking in German. Hey, dude, be nice to interviewers. We're, we're, we're nice. The song starts off with this fun banjo intro, and then, you know, the, the actual chariot busts in the door with Josh screaming, this world is a stage. Broken bones, no regrets. This world is a stage. And everyone seems to have an opinion. Which is one of my favorite lines from this record. I like it because it's poetic, but also very truthful. I mean, in an age of modern social media, live streaming, Instagram reels, TikTok videos, the world truly has become a stage for everyone to voice their opinions. Now everybody get off my lawn, damn it. However, the song is more about other people, and presumably it's about other Christians, shying away from the message of Jesus. But he insists he must speak it because he is choking on someone else's blood and the fingerprints of God. And again, he sounds joyful about this, which is really the defining characteristic of this album. There are harsh truths about the world, sure, but like they're not going to get this dude down. He's on a mission, and nothing is going to keep him away from that mission. No matter what you believe, I think that's pretty respectable. The musical highlight on this album for me is right in the middle, and the song is called And Then Came Then. And it starts off with this beautiful cinematic music sample that sounds like it's being played off of a vinyl record. And then that pretty melodic bit is just broken into pieces with Josh coming in screaming my world be ashes and a casket for all I want and he does it in his like lowest guttural vocals I've never really heard him do vocals like that before and then he screams the apocalypse of this way comes and the song slams you into the ground in this fashion until this like unhinged voice comes like along the side or maybe like into your left earphone and the breakdown hits like a ton of bricks with Josh screaming, The devil is in Atlanta, are made surrounded. And I got to be honest with the lyrics on this song, I, <laughs> I've kind of got nothing. The whole devil in Atlanta line's really cool, and I can't really make heads or tails of the rest of the lyrics, though. And at the three minute, 42 second mark, you might think the song is over, but stick around because the last minute and 20 seconds of the song are straight up spellbinding. I can't even describe how it makes me feel, but if the theme of this album is joy in destruction, that's what this song feels like. Check it out. next is the company the comfort the grave and it tries its very best to follow what was essentially the best song on the album but i think it succeeds pretty well as it gives us a huge extended taste of uh 
you know, that, that feedback that we all should be used to right now. And then it kicks into this pummeling rhythm. And I don't care how many scene points you have. You'd be hard-pressed to find another record that came out in 2004 that is this noisy and this unhinged. Lyrically, and again, please take this with a grain of salt, the song seems to be about other Christians, probably other Christian bands, who instead of adapting their words and actions to the teachings of God, instead adapt God to their words and their actions. He says, go, walk backwards, say goodbye to what's right. And later he says, God save this gunslinging generation. Tell God that I will return in the morning. This Christ you preach, I know. But who are you? Your hands are tied to blind men, whose hands are tied to blind men. Figure eights. And then he ends the song by saying, this pistol is my ministry. And let me tell you, that breakdown that goes along with that particular set of lyrics is absolutely apocalyptic. This breakdown is the most perfect picture of what Christian metalcore was in the early 2000s. Like, it just straight up is. If you ask me, like, hey, what's a cool Christian band from the early 2000s? I'm going to, like, pull this album out and I'm going to show you this song. It is an absolute era encased in musical amber. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over the next song, which is called The Bullet Never Lies and Will Prove All Things an allegory of unfaithful Jerusalem, because, of course, that's what it's called. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and just spare telling you that I have no idea what the song is about. So we're going to move on to Yellow Dress Locked Knees, which wins the DFT award for the most chaotic song on a Chariot album. This is the finalized version of the song that was on the Solid State sampler that I was talking about earlier. And I think I prefer the album version. Like, the level of intensity is unmatched by anything on the later albums by The Chariot. And extra points for him actually screaming the words, Swing Wide, Sweet Chariot. And there's a cool part of this song at the 50-second timestamp where the vocals are growled in Spanish. Despite me having this album for like 19 years at this point, I, I only decided to translate the lyrics for the songs using Google Translate like when I was writing this script this week. And uh, this is roughly what it says. You can tell me if this world is changing. This is the reality that you want me to live. Jesus, I want this world to know you. Rejoice, favor yourself with this humble servant. So um, now you know. Now you know what that what, what, what those words were, and uh, I can officially change the category of this podcast to educational, and then, you know, profit. 
The next song is called If Wishes Were Horses, More Beggars Would Ride Them. And it seems to be about begging God to hurry up and bring an end to the world. He says, please, like a thief, won't you come? Put an end to all this fun. And you can feel the longing he has to meet his maker. But again, it's in a pure way, not like a everything sucks and I want to die kind of way. He just wants to kind of like cut all the toil and, and get to the good part like right away, which is meeting God in the flesh. And I like the part where he uses a bunch of cliche phrases in a row like, I will see you in a Broadway year, a New York second, a Wall Street minute, a Hollywood moment. The album concludes with the song Good Night My Lady and a Forever Farewell. This is a pretty epic album closer and it incorporates nearly every musical element found on the album into one last concentrated assault. There's a lot of tempo changes in this song and it keeps me on my toes trying to predict what's about to happen next. And usually when I memorize these chaotic hardcore albums like I do, Eventually that suspense kind of fades away, but with this album, it still manages to capture that sense of unpredictability really well. And this one's kind of another lyrical mystery to me. Like I talked about in my Converge Jane Doe episode, I think a lot of these lyrics are kind of art for art's sake more than they're always trying to deliver a specific message to the listener. I mean, they do that sometimes, but a lot of these songs are almost like straight up art pieces uh and i think that um that's one of the things that i like the most about the chariot is that they have this kind of artful integrity to them In conclusion, because I've, I've prattled on now for about 30 minutes, and uh, this album really is just a breath of fresh air to me, and I think that that was always the intention behind it. As metal and hardcore bands in the early 2000s started to rise in popularity, so did a lot of the worn-out tropes of heavy music. Like, think about how many bands that there were... Think about, think about how many bands there were that were called Blood of X Thing, or Death This, or Dying That, or The Martyr Cries for Death, or, or whatever, right? And The Chariot sort of calls this out with just the name of the album itself. I mean, everything is alive, everything is breathing, nothing is dead, nothing is bleeding. is a pretty bold statement. And that statement is that you can still have an absolutely brutal and chaotic record that can still be joyful. And going back to that quote from Joshua King at the top of the episode, this is a perfect musical example of something being hard, loud, energetic, and brutal, but is still good and still uplifting. And not just because of the band's Christian sensibilities either. I've heard plenty of Christian bands that elicit an angry and hateful feeling that pretty much all of the secular bands also produce. If you want to hear more about that, listen to my A Plea for Purging episode because I told you that I was going to plug it again before the end of this episode. 
But I can confidently say that the chariot hit me like a breath of fresh air in 2004 because despite me being an angry, angsty 18-year-old when I heard it, I never listened to it without smiling. So thank you, the chariot, for creating something that can drain my aggression and leave me feeling hopeful for what comes next. Thank you guys so much for listening to that episode of DFT's Dungeon. I want to apologize in advance for all the times I messed up, but uh, I promised that I was going to record it raw, so that is absolutely what I did. But, you know, I was talking with some of the guys in the Discord server earlier this week, and I was talking about how it's really hard to talk about the first Chariot album without talking about their EP, which was called Unsung, that came out a little bit later. And what that EP is is it's like four or five songs. I think it's maybe four songs. I, well, well I'll, I'll find out later, but uh, it's like it's several songs from this album that are cleaned up significantly. It sounds like they did record it in a studio, and it's all cleaned up, and it's all pretty. And so I want to talk about that EP as well, which you know some of you might be shocked that I want to talk about an EP at all. But um, I would like to talk about that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a 20-minute bonus episode for Patreon subscribers. So if you sign up for my Patreon, there's a link in the show notes of this episode that will take you there. You can listen to my to my 20-minute diatribe on the unsung EP by The Chariot. And uh, like I always say in every episode, if you guys like this podcast, make sure you are subscribed to it and also make sure that you can leave it a review wherever you want to leave a review online telling people to check this podcast out. But the most important thing about it is that you're telling people about this podcast. The only way a podcast can dr- the only way a podcast can grow is if people tell other people about it organically. It's not always about search algorithms. People don't just magically find podcasts out there. They uh, they like to take good recommendations from friends. And uh, if you guys want to follow me or have any questions for me or be like, Dan, why did you record an episode completely raw? You sound like a total idiot. Uh, you could do that. Uh, I have a Discord server that I've mentioned a couple times already. Uh, you can sign up for that. There'll be a link in the show notes for that. And uh, you can always send me an email at dftdungeon at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on the various social media platforms. I'm on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And there'll be links to all that in the show notes as well. Guys, thank you so much. We are just over halfway done with season two, and it has been amazing. And I can't wait for you guys to hear the rest of what I have in store. So I will see you guys here again next week.